Hello, everybody. My name is Chuck Rocha, and welcome back to the Latino Vote Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my brother from another mother, Mike Madrid, live here in Washington, D.C. Welcome to my city, Mike Madrid. Hot and humid, as would be expected in a summer in D.C. Um, Everything that you would expect from something tropical except the beautiful ocean view. (laughs) <laughs> well, they do say that this is the city for ugly people. That's why I am such an overperformer. <laughs> That's why I'm from California, by the way. Yeah. I'm, you know, we went out to California, me and Ebony did, what was that, like four weeks ago, a month and a half ago? I was telling you, we went out to Palm Springs for a congressional retreat. Now, Palm Springs is not all of California, I assume. But as soon as me and Ebony got off the plane, she was like, Ooh, this place is nice. And then after a day and a half, a woman who said she would never leave D.C. was like, Oh, I I could live here. And I'm like, it's Palm Springs. Of course you could live here if we could afford to, AKA live here. Yeah. Everybody, everybody would live in Palm Springs if they could. Well, thanks everybody for joining us back here on the podcast. We are luckily to be in the same room in the same place, which never happens with me at Mike. So we have to look at each other and smell each other. And I can tell you for all of you Twitter followers, Mike Madrid does not smell like a wild squirrel, like a human being in his Mike Madrid outfit. Uh, But we're going to dive into the Latino vote podcast today and talk talk about issues that are on our mind. And the way we're going to do it today is different. Me and Mike are kind of going to go back and forth. I'm going to raise a topic and then I'm going to let Mike raise a topic and react to his topic. And I'm going to get to start since he's in my hometown. And just for the record, when I go to California, he'll get to start. But I want to talk about the controversy of all controversies in Latino space over the last two weeks, which is Taco Gate. Uh, Taco Gate is something that I have given this, but this was when of Jill Biden, Jill Biden went down to San Antonio for the Unidos conference, which used to be for all of you old Mexicans like me, the National Council of La Raza uh, to their convention and gave a great speech. But during the speech, she was talking about the differences between the Latino community, the Hispanic community. And she talked about flowers in Miami. She talked about bodegas. She didn't say bodegas, but bodegas in New York being as different as breakfast tacos in San Antonio. Mike Madrid, tell me what you thought about the big controversy. Look, it has been too much been made about this in many ways. Yeah, of course it has. But, but, and this is really significant, it's yet another sign of what I think the Biden administration's problem is in its efforts to get out of its own way to stop stemming the bleeding amongst Hispanic voters. And, and here's why. Let me explain why. Okay? Here comes the Mike Madrid windup. Y'all. Here's the windup. Nobody thinks for a moment that Jill or Joe Biden are bad racist people or that they find, you know, Mexicanos or, or Cubanos or Boricuas, whatever, uh, you know, anything less than. That's not the suggestion here. Uh, The the bigger problem was this speech was clearly written by Latino staffers, Hispanic staffers in the administration who have this need, cultural need in an organization to demonstrate their Latinidad, right? Their Hispanicity, they're, they're down with the cause. And so they resort to these stereotypes. And it just shows how far removed that is from the community. Is it that big of a deal? No, but 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 in some ways it, it is because it's it signifies a larger problem. I have never, Chuck, I have never felt that the Biden people get the size, the scope of the problem they have with the Hispanic community. And I don't believe they have anybody on the inside. Sorry if that offends some of your friends. You can push back on all you want. Uh, how to solve the damn problem. There's a problem and they've got to come to terms with that. The, the, the taco gate controversy 
uh, as ridiculous as it is, is a sign of a bigger problem. That's my opinion on this whole thing. Tell me, I've I'm got wrong. a couple of things around. I think you are wrong on part of it, not all of it. Uh, but I do think that it does show our weakness, our weakness as Democrats to even be put into this controversy. And let me explain what I mean by that. And what I mean by that is that I have used, I, Chuck Rocha, I, Latino vote expert, I, Mexican redneck from East Texas, have used the exact same, is it euphemism? I don't know all the fancy words, but let's just say I've done the same thing she has done and used the exact same language to distinguish cultural competency between folks from East L.A., to San Antonio, to Miami. And when I go to San Antonio specifically, I myself use breakfast tacos. And I use them because the first time I ever went to San Antonio was 1995 for a guy named Ciro Rodriguez in a special election. And I walked in for canvassing for the first time on a Saturday morning into his office. And there were these brown sacks of, little did I know, breakfast tacos. And it was the first time that I had seen them. And this was like a customary thing for San Antonio campaigns to have breakfast tacos. So I am sure the culturally competent staff that she had put that in that speech. Now, should they have worked with her on the speech, make sure she understood how to say bodega? That is a failure on everybody's behalf. But I myself have used breakfast tacos to say breakfast tacos in San Antonio and even lowriders in East LA, because I've never seen lowriders anywhere else. But the whole fact that we as weak ass Democrats cannot stand up to Republicans and let them just cut off taco and not say breakfast taco because there's tacos in East LA. And me and Mike Madrid should actually do Good a tacos, whole podcast on who has the best tacos, <laughs> Texas or California. Yeah. Then we can have a real controversial yeah. show yeah. besides this. So was it stupid? Was it blown out of proportion? Yes, but it, it, it's almost like the Latino vote podcast itself. It exposes our underbelly of weakness on certain things in the boat or in the way that we just can't land a punch. Yeah. We are just taking punches all day long. And even on breakfast tacos stood back. And that's why you knew. And I knew a lot of our friends were going, man, we should get out there. Cause we knew we were right on the issue. We were right that breakfast tacos are synonymous. Most of us know on San Antonio, but we couldn't even do that. Right. right. We were like, Oh, quit punching. It's going to be okay. <laughs> it's a taco. Like everybody knows we're right. So yeah. that's the only the part of the controversy that, I thought was worth a shit. I think, look, I, the most controversial part about this is uh, breakfast tacos are not, they're egg burritos. It's not even a taco. And it's not and for breakfast. Only Texans would have to like own something that isn't a thing and make it, a, a, try to make it a thing and then be ridiculed for it. So if we put eggs in chorizo and it, it's not it's not just a taco, we have to say it's a breakfast taco. Oh, yeah. You have to like create your own thing. It's like that's not even a thing. But, you know, it, it, I get it. It's Texas being Texas. I, I think we've probably beaten this, this uh, you know, dead horse a little bit too long. It's not that big of a deal, but it is an indicator, I think, of a larger problem, which is going to segue into my discussion point, which is. CNN came out with some polling yesterday, which shows Hispanic numbers continuing to lag for Joe Biden. And as you know, Chuck, I've talked about all the methodological problems with all of these polls. There's no question that there's, there remains methodological problems. The sample size are not too big, but we're starting to see these gaps with, with black voters now, with Asian voters, and clearly with Hispanic voters. It's not reconciling. There is a problem. There, this is a neutral observer, okay? I've worked for Republicans. I've worked for Democrats. Everybody knows who I am in this space. 
if I'm looking at this as just a numbers guy, which is really what I'm interested in doing, there is a five alarm fire. And what I don't see is a concerted strategy to even acknowledge what is going on. Like there's a problem. Are, are, are we at the point where your party is finally going to say, okay, the war is engaged or is it still at this? No, it's not a problem yet. Like, is it, are we past the delusion or are we, and are we ready to engage and fight and like have this out on the Latino vote? Or is it still like, no, no, it's not a problem. It's methodology. It's, it's misinformation in Spanish mediums. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, don't look at it. It's, it's a charade. We're really doing way better than we were 30 years ago. Like, where are we in this fight? Now, I want to come back to you. I'm going to ask you a question and then okay. I'm going to answer okay. your question. Okay. Because I really want to know if you're the numbers guy, the methodology guy. I love how you say the word, by the way. But when you talk about the methodology and the numbers, Latinos underperforming. Okay, I get that. They're underperforming. And I'll answer your question in a minute about whether my party is taking that seriously. Underperforming with Asian Americans, underperforming with black voters. Yeah. But what about this, Mike Madrid? Yeah. Wouldn't you say right now when the president's numbers is only 30% approval, 35, 38, all depending on which number you're looking at, aren't we as Democrats underperforming with the electorate as a whole? And that's just being reflected in these demographics of brown, black, and Asian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I mean, yeah, if you're saying the problem isn't just as bad as you're saying it is, it's far, far worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, not, I'm not, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to make sure that everybody understands what he just said, because I agree, too, that right now it's loathsome as we're looking at polling in these congressional races and Senate races that I'm working on to see that. And we're going to get to let me precurse some things we want to talk about today, which is things are starting to kind of coalesce in these Senate races and we're getting Democratic candidates and Republicans. And me and Mike are going to talk about that here in a minute. But just on Democrats underperforming with Latinos. This is the Latino podcast. Well, first of all. Democrats, I'm not proud to say this, are underperforming with everybody. Breaking news, hot off the, the presses. But the problem is, normally, black voters are at 80%, 90% with Democrats. 90. Normally, Latinos are at, I like to say, 65%. That's where we should be. That should be the baseline, in my opinion. We all get so excited about 59 and 58. Mike Madrid always says, if, if you're fighting over 55, we're going to win a lot of races because they got all the white vote consolidated. So I was, I was with a group of influential thought leaders, is the best way I could say that without exposing where I was. A lot of you knew where I was this weekend around folks. And they were talking about, is this a problem? A lot of Latino congressmen, lots of lobbyists, lots of thought leaders. When, and they see me and they want to ask me a political question about our Latinos. This was kind of a common thing of two different questions asked to me. Is, is, are we really as bad as the polls are saying right now with Latino voters? And one of them brought up specifically Orange County where it's surprisingly like 50-50 right now in Orange County with Latino likely off-year voters. So they're weighing that a lot of presidential Latinos, which made the survey more believable to me, are not showing up. And I think when they said, what do you think we do about it? What's, what policy do we use to try to win them back when inflation is at 9%, gas in California is at $6 a gallon, all I can think of, these are these folks talking to me, is that do this is why not every ad's about choice because that's the thing that we have right now that we can try to move people with. And I said, I think it's much more than that. I think we have to show up and have a conversation and put blame or some of the responsibility on Republicans and not be afraid to do that. Whether it is 100% the Republicans' fault 
And they were like, well, how do you do that? And then that was kind of the light that went up because I was like, Republicans do that to us every day. It may not be 100% our fault, but they lay it at our feet every day. Yeah. Smash mouth, here you go. Yeah. That's why you saw on my Twitter Monday, on my Twitter Monday that I tweeted me and Mike Tyson believe the same way Love about it. everybody's got a plan. Fight like a Republican, baby. Everybody's got a plan <laughs> till you get smacked in the face. As soon as somebody gets punched in the face, that plan goes out the door. No one's listening to your so, playbook anymore. So I was like, first of all, I was like, most progressive Democrats that are Latino that are running or non-Latino progressives don't take a dollar of Exxon or oil money. Most Republican candidates that I know take all of the oil money you will give them plus all the oil trade organizations money and Exxon and the oil companies have made record profits. That ad writes itself if gas is $6 a gallon. Why haven't we seen that ad run yet by Democrats? That is, that's a place I would show up to have this debate. And I think that's why we have this podcast is because this is us talking openly with both parties about the vulnerabilities. My own party has vulnerabilities because we are responsible because we control every branch of Correct. government. But we don't have a filibuster-proof Senate but we also, a lot of them aren't taking oil and gas money. So just one example Love of how that. you can show No, that. That, I think that's exactly the right frame on how you learn to play offense. And that's what it's about. What I have learned about the difference between Republicans and Democrats is exactly what you said. Is, is Democrats believe if you come up with the right policy solution, you're going to win the campaign. Republicans just want to win, win the race. And, and so we fight very differently. We fight on very different battlefields and we have very different conversations. And what you're articulating is a strategy to run offense and to attack, which is exactly right. If you're explaining, you're losing, as we say in campaigns. If you're on the defense and you're trying to answer Republican attacks, you're losing. And that's what frustrates Democrats is because their natural tendency is to find an explanation or be like, you're lying or that's misinformation because oftentimes it is, or you're the reason that this, you know, your policy solutions created this morass and we're trying to get us out of it. The voters don't look at it that way. They don't look, that's not the way voter psychology works. What you're articulating is exactly right. Attack and make them explain why it's not oil companies that are driving up inflation. Was this the strength of Donald Trump? Was he good at this part where we react to him instead of yeah. take him on? The Democratic Party is extraordinarily reactionary. One is it's, there's just a fear in the party. The second is a lot of this has to do with the fact that Democrats believe, this is no judgment call, but they believe in the institution of government to solve problems which you know, is, is virtuous. We can debate the size and scope of government and all that nonsense, but the truth of the matter is a lot of people, especially working class people, don't necessarily knee-jerk believe that that's the solution. That's okay. You can still be a working class party and say, look, we're the party that's investing billions of dollars and build back better. We're going to be, we are building bridges. We are building roads. We are putting hard hats to work here. But we're also going to start finding some other solutions to make this green jobs transition that we've heard all about, which real working class people don't believe in because it ain't true. And I can hear the attack emails coming in already saying, Mike Madrid, your Republicans are showing. It's not me talking. That's working class voters talking at the, at the voting booth. That's where it's happening. And once the Democratic Party comes to terms with the fact that it's got to get back to the reasons why Chuck Rocha became a Democrat, you're going to start seeing Latinos potentially coming back into the fold in the numbers that they need because those are the concerns. Working class people, pull them, look at it. They do not believe of any color 
do not believe the Democratic Party is the party of the working man. So don't take my word for it. Take the working man's word for it. They're the ones saying it. And then you can either tell them that they're not smart enough to understand it, which I would not advise, but I hear a lot from progressives, or listen to what they're saying and, and then ask yourself, can we be the party that addresses that while also solving some of these solutions like climate change, like environmental degradation? Because if you can't, you will continue to lose the blue-collar, non-college-educated, working-class voters all day I think long. a lot of that has to do with the... A lot of that is the reason why, and I think you wrote about this in your New York Times op-ed about the middle-class voter, the blue-collar voter. We think of that as the old white steel worker in Michigan or Indiana, in Gary, or in Cleveland, when it is this multicultural, multiracial, middle-aged person who doesn't have a college degree who's trying to figure out how to make it. And this is my argument, is that that's why there's such a door open for this not to be over. While this is just a slide a little bit to the Democrats, I mean to the Republicans, excuse me, and not this huge swing. Were there some swingy, bigger areas like Miami-Dade and McAllen? You sure? There was some 15 to 20-point swings in one election cycle. That will come back at some rate, probably. But the key here is that when you talk to Latino voters— they align with the policy issues mostly, not this is not everyone, with the Democratic Party on jobs in America, investing in America, keeping trade that keeps jobs in America, making sure there's a solvent Social Security and Medicare safety net for people, and that education is openly available for folks because they see that as a ladder to the middle class, while Republicans, not Mike Madrid, not every Republican, but want to come at that from an angle of corporate America. They don't never talk about it in this way. This is what drives me crazy because they're smart about it, right? You never see a Republican show up in a working class neighborhood and talk about economic issues that are going to make that person have more money unless it's reliant on giving more tax breaks to that person's corporate boss that may reciprocate down and may help them somewhat. They show up in that neighborhood and talk about something that's divisive that will motivate that person around race. Donald Trump was great at that thinking those people, the others, are taking their jobs and their health care, show up and talk about critical race theory, they're going to turn your kids gay in school, or say that whatever one of those social issues are, and it's as a politician, it drives me crazy to the core because it's smart, because you can't talk to that working class person about what you're doing directly for them economically because you're in the pocket, in my opinion, of Republican donors and shareholders and corporations who are funding this, but your strategists are smart enough to know when you get to that blue-collar house, you talk about guns and gays and government and God and the things that fucking motivate those folks. And so that's what drives me crazy. Yeah, and it should because you're- It look, works, right? It works. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not saying it isn't right, but it, but it works. And that's what I'm saying. What you just articulated is what I said where Republicans are trying to win the campaign. They're not trying to win the policy We're bringing argument. a policy book to a boxing match. We're bringing a policy book to a boxing match. And it is, in many ways, it's frustrating now because I see the rise of, of this. And of course, I've spoken out against it and I'm working against it. And I believe that there are ways to beat this stuff. But from a Latino perspective, first of all, you have the Democratic Party still has, I would argue, very significant advantages. You still have very strong messengers. There's a lot more Latino mayors and Latino council members and Latino school board members. And as a community... Up until very recently, we still communicated that way. We are now starting to see misinformation networks, which are very well-funded and very sophisticated, by the way. You saw uh, the Libra Initiative yesterday put out this blog post saying that the rightward shift amongst Hispanic voters was due in part to Hunter Biden's um, um, corruption. 
And I'm like, this is this is absurd. It's bonkers. I tweeted out saying this is just bananas. But the truth of the matter is they're right. And let me tell you why they're right. They're right because they have invested millions of dollars creating social networks using WhatsApp, uh, talking to people on YouTube, and have this captive audience where people are watching their news, their outlets, and exclusively – they keep them engaged exclusively on their platforms. And so whatever they tell them is the hot topic, they're going to believe. And that's what the Republican strategy has been. It is this is not new. This has been built over years. This has been built over years. How old is the Nebe Initiative? At least six, eight years old? About 10 now. I think Daniel's been ahead of it, ahead of it for 10 years. And by the way, Libra Initiative, uh, and Libra Initiative, by the way, is a Coke-funded, multimillion-dollar operation which was started years before the Trump yep. Trump came onto yep. the scene. For sure. The Koch brothers and the Trump and Trump when the, the Koch, Koch brothers, brothers saw and y'all should all know at home, Koch brothers were as a democrat on the democratic side of immigration. Correct. Like, for, just like the business world was and people don't talk about that. Yeah. They wanted fair frequent immigration to help make more money because they knew immigrant immigration, immigrant immigration, there you go, redneck, it was good for America because it brings more people in. So I just digress there that this is not some far right wing Donald Trump thing. No, this is, there is a very wide split. I, that's the Mike Madrid side, the George W. Bush side of immigration, where we were pushing back in the early 2000s to have broader mass scale legal immigration. We need to fix our immigration system because our economy, frankly, demands it. You've got a bunch of older white people who are going to be more and more on the government dole as these boomers retire. You need all we, these young workers to pay out of their check, we, Social Security taxes. Exactly. So we're on this inverted pyramid, and what we need, we desperately need all these old white people watching Fox News who hate immigrants, literally are going to be supported by immigrants if we can get immigration reform done. If not, they're going to bankrupt the damn system because they're more than happy to put it all on a credit card and have us pay for it. At least me as a young guy, you're a little bit older. I think you're in that older yeah, Fox News vooing group. So you'll be retired uh, any of while you I'm still working for a living and supporting it, Chuck Rocha. Yeah. I, yeah. For any of you who's seen us, I am older, but it's hard to believe because I have taken Mike Madrid has put so many miles on his body, drugs and alcohol. Cam Cam <laughs> campaign miles, brother. Campaign miles. <laughs> so let's jump to another subject. Yeah. Uh, I think we should, and this is a good thing that you just brought up, which is hard for me to say out loud, but we should have a whole separate episode about misinformation yeah. in Spanish in our community. Yeah. Because I think that there's so much of that happening that's affecting the vote, the yes. Latino vote in so many ways. Yeah. We should not jump into that today because we have an agenda. And the team here, plus Kenna, will kill all of us. So uh, let's move along to what my question is for you. Yeah. And my question for you today, the next one is jumping into some of these Senate primaries. Everybody's saying, oh, my God, it's going to be a bad year for the House for Democrats and the Senate for Democrats and then the governments for Democrats, me and Mike Madrid have been saying, because so many of these competitive races are in places where there's large numbers of Latinos. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm seeing this now as a little bit of a mixed bag because I do believe that I haven't seen anything in the house that would make me believe that that is not going to happen, especially since there are so many races where there are tons of Latinos in the house, California, 22, California, 45, New Mexico, two, Colorado, eight, Texas, 15, Florida, 26, just to name all of those races have more than 40% Latino. They'll probably determine the house, but let's talk about the Senate. Yeah. And what I want to ask you is in Senate, there's now been Republican primaries since the last time we all got together and we haven't talked about this. So there are four big Senate states. I would actually say five because I'll throw in Wisconsin, Mike. But Pennsylvania, Georgia, yep. Nevada, Arizona, and let's throw in uh, the incumbent Johnson in Wisconsin. Yeah. Well, in all of those, and I would make the argument for Wisconsin too because there's a large Mexican population in Milwaukee. Correct. But let's just talk about these Republican nominees yeah. in Pennsylvania, 
who was Oz, Dr. Oz, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And then this uh, Mike Madrid, I'm, excuse me, this Republican <laughs> in Georgia, <laughs> Herschel Walker, who yeah. was a, quite the football player, has got a lot of babies out there and has done a lot on the environment. But also, that's the good news for Democrats. The bad news for Democrats is we still see underperforming numbers in Nevada, underperforming numbers, not as bad actually in Arizona. Mike, I think uh, Senator Kelly out there is doing a decent job. And you always say Arizona Latinos act much differently than Nevada yes, and other Latinos. Exactly so right. Where do you think the Senate map is shaping up with what these Republicans have nominated in those two states and the problems we have in maybe Nevada compared to Arizona? Uh, look, that's a great setup. So let me answer it this way. The first is I, I'm still at this point. We're nearly 100 days out, Chuck. I still am of the belief that the Republicans will take the House of Representatives, probably by 20-plus seats. Okay, I think it's going to be a, a, a considerable margin. I don't think it's going to be small. I think it will be will be considerable. A lot will change in 100 days. I may change our predict, that prediction and probably will as we get a little bit closer to this. The House, of course, is uh, – I'm sorry, the Senate is, is a little bit different. And it is, it is a much more competitive, and that will become the backstop for the Democratic Party, at least in Congress, when these crazy Republicans do start impeaching Biden and bring up you know, Hunter Biden before Congress and impeach Merrick Garland and blah, 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 because that will happen. So let's talk about Arizona. First, Arizona Latinos vote a lot like California Latinos. They're much more partisan. They're much more Democrat. And those that are independent break very strongly towards the Democratic Party. There is a reason why California and Arizona Latinos vote as a consistent Democratic bloc. And we should probably do an episode on that because I think it's fascinating and it's one of the reasons why I think the, the, the Democratic Party has consistently missed what is happening beyond those two states, especially in Texas, obviously the Cuban exception in Florida, but it's happening everywhere. But bottom line is Arizona has had 20 years of Republican, anti-immigrant, overtly racist policies. Republicans have been uh, um, punishing the, the Latino community. This it, is it, the Jan Brewers, the show me your paper laws. This Joe is George Arpaio. Arpaio. Okay. This is the bad, ugly, ugliest side of the Republican Party. Tent camps with Latinos, everything. The Senate everything. bill, I uh, don't forget the number. 1070. 1070, of course, that was about profiling and legitimizing, legalizing profile. Like there's a whole generation of Arizona. You think that that probably codified that vote even more. Locked it in cement. Much like in California when it was the Pete Wilson? Prop Pete Wilson, okay. Prop 187, 20 years of anti-immigrant bills introduced in the legislature. It's like 20 years of barraging this stuff um, starts to cement a whole generation's public opinion. That happened in California and Arizona. You have not had that in Texas. Or Nevada. Or Nevada. Now, Nevada is a little interesting because some of the dad lists. So, so, so uh, look, if, if, if I'm looking at Arizona, my prediction right now is Kelly wins that race and he wins that race with a very predictable, reliable share that 65, 35, maybe even more of the Hispanic vote. Maybe he pushes into the 70, 30 range. I think he does very well. They haven't had their primaries yet, have they? On the Republican side in Arizona? They have not had it yet. Okay. Okay. So, but, but I, I still believe it's that predictable in Arizona. No matter who the Arizona. nominee is. No matter the nominees. You could, I, could, I could be wrong. Sure, sure, sure. But we'll let's take a look at we it. This is, this is a lot of looking at this. Nevada really fascinates me. And I want to hear your opinion because nobody knows Nevada Hispanic the way that you do. And you've shown how organizing works. But here's where I started to say there is a big effing problem. The problem is you started having some liberal groups putting out some polling saying we are actually doing phenomenally well with Hispanics. Our 30-year strategy is actually doing really well. And if you looked under the hoods at the crosstabs, one data point really jumps out at me, and that is this. Donald Trump had in the same polling, Democrats are saying we're doing great with Latinos, he had a 40% approval rating with Hispanics in Nevada. That is a red flag. Like there is a problem. And I think 
I think Castro's in trouble there, okay? I think she's in trouble, and I think that the Democrats aren't taking it seriously, and I think they- Catherine oh, Cortez Mastos. what I say? You Castro. Castro. Oh, sorry, you edit that out. Edit that out, because <laughs> maybe it's that Republican calling people communist thing that's been sticking in my brain a little bit. Cortez Mastro, sorry. Uh, th- there's a problem, and what needs to be rectified there, reconciled, is on-the-ground organizing. This, I don't think, is a message problem. This, I'd love to have your opinion on this because that, I think, is the only way to counter what is happening there. There is a discernible rightward shift, at least in the polling, can be fixed by election day, but I think can only be fixed by door-to-door, having people in the family or Latinas or leaders talking to other people in the community, uh, in the neighborhoods, organizing on the ground level in order to get uh, uh, Mastro, Cortez Mastro, the the numbers that she's going to need to perform in Nevada, keep that seat. Let's let's let me let me respond to that. Then we'll do Pennsylvania and do Georgia. But I want to make sure people understand that what Mike has said about Arizona is so true. And in Nevada, the 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 jury is still out. There's two things that I know, and I don't want to make up numbers. I want to tell you what I know for a fact because I, I don't know the impact yet because I don't know which poll to believe. But there's two things that are happening that encourage me, but also scare me. One is. The Senate Majority Pack has outspent Republicans there and the DSCC, that's the Senate side of the Democrats for those of you at home, the super PACs and the campaign infrastructure and the campaign for that matter. I give the campaign props. Uh, Scott and the team out there I think are doing a good job. Uh, Have spent more money on Spanish language advertising than Republicans to this point 15 times more. There you go. So that shows me something different is happening. Now, uh, the the senator's campaign would say they were up as early as they were before, but there's others that are joining them. That's the big difference. So just the mass communication in Spanish earlier. I think there's more money in the infrastructure. I think that's a piece. But seeing how much more quickly they are setting the narrative, at least in Spanish TV, again, y'all at home, don't tweet at us. I know that the majority of Latinos in Nevada are consuming their information in English. But it's just something for me to measure. If I can't see their campaign plan, what they're doing in Spanish will give me a guide to I bet what they're doing in in English and Spanish, in uh, mail and in digital. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is my good friend, Melissa Morales, who runs an organization called Somos, has been on the ground there for months. And I noticed that she had popped up in the space there. She's an amazing organizer out of SEIU, runs this, one of the best grassroots groups in the world. And they started canvassing months ago. Who they're canvassing, how deep are they canvassing, how they're canvassing, I don't know. This is, again, I just don't know. I'm not part of their group. I love her and respect her and the organization. But the fact that they're there, when there were two or three other smaller groups that may or may not do as well as people may think they should be doing as organizing on the ground. I learned a lot of this when I was doing Bernie because I met a lot of these groups. For her to come into the state and set up shop and then start canvassing at a big scale, I hear that she has big money. That makes me know, Mike Madrid, they knew what you knew, which was we got to have somebody big and professional on the ground if we're going to have a shot. And I don't know if they're getting the job done, but I know if I was going to hire somebody to get the job done, it would be her and Somo. So that's encouraging to me. The thing that's discouraging to me is that this is an off year election. And I would take everybody back to the state of Nevada in 2014 when they lost every single statewide election. When Harry Reid, just two years prior, had swept the state and won an election he was not supposed to win because there was just this huge drop off with Latino voters in a non-presidential year that happens more distinctly or whatever that word is 
in this state. So those are the pluses and the minuses in my in, in my behalf. Love that overview. Let me let me speak to the turnout question really quickly because I was on a radio interview last yesterday uh, in California where we had a record high midterm primary turnout. The Latino percentage was only 16%. Very low turnout when the rest of the state was turning out high numbers. Hispanic turnout was only 16%. Turnout is going to be a big problem. And you brought up the right year. 2014 was an all-time low. A lot of the polling that was coming out from Democrats was way off because the issue set didn't match the turnout model. And you had Hispanic numbers way, way low. And it allowed people like Cory Gardner in the Senate to win seats that they probably would not have otherwise won in Colorado. And you saw that problem in California as well. Let me ask your opinion on this. Yeah. In 2018, Democratic off-year primary skyrocketed because Democrats were super pissed yep. that Donald Trump had won the presidency and it was their first time to be able to push back on something that they did not like that happened. So my question is, do Republicans do the same thing with a Joe Biden in the first year of him in office? Great question. Great question. I don't think so. And let me tell you why. There's a gap between the president's approval ratings, which are a historic low and the generic ballot for Democrats, which is competitive with the Republicans. Notice even right now, you are not say, seeing ads being run right by Republicans saying, that's a Joe Biden Democrat. That's a Joe Biden Democrat. You know, you're not seeing that the way we used to do that and wrap Obama around, you know, the Democrats or Trump would the Democrats would do Trump and the Republicans. Why aren't you seeing that? The reason why is the Republican polling is showing what everybody else's poll is showing is people are making a differentiation between Joe Biden and and the standard average Democrat. That type of ad is not gonna work. That's good news for Democrats in the House. That's good news for Democrats in the Senate. The longer term party prospects will get to, but it is an important distinction. It is a great question. I don't think Republicans will use it um, because it's not working, it's not sticking. Uh, voters are already making a distinction even 100 days out between the average standard Democrat and Joe Biden himself, who's, who's a unique character at this moment in time. In Pennsylvania and in Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, the Democrats have elected their lieutenant governor, John Fetterman. This would be this big old boy who wears a pair of shorts and a hoodie everywhere he goes, who ironically, I may have some experience in this, had a heart attack a few months or like six weeks before the primary and still won. That's how bad our field was. But he is a great candidate. I love this guy because he is the former mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, he is kind of the common sense steel worker, working class like champion. This dude wouldn't move into the lieutenant governor's mansion and turn the lieutenant governor's pool into a public pool for the community to have. Like this dude really believes in what he's doing. So I think I'm a big John Fetterman fan. I don't work for John Fetterman. I am working in the state for one of the super PACs. I will openly talk about that without giving the name. But the Republicans just had their primary and they had a very contentious primary and a guy named Dr. Oz, who many of you may know from selling diet pills on the internet, won his uh, primary there in the Republican side, who a lot of folks say still lives in New Jersey, who just moved to Pennsylvania, who may be some kind of shield. I don't know, but the polling is within single digits. Uh, Fetterman is winning in quote unquote the polls right now. Again, we don't know what's going to turn out. And then I will jump to explain Georgia, then turn it over to Mike to comment on both of these. In Georgia, you have Raphael Warnock running in the reddest blue state in America. Uh, Democrats had never won until Joe Biden. Um, you, but one of the factors I do think is that the amazing woman who ran the last time for Georgia, Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams is uh, running again. Yeah. And she has done real on the ground what Mike was talking about, mobilizing people. 
And uh, you have um, a former football player. What was his name? He didn't wear a helmet. Yeah. Oh, helmet. he did. Yeah. <laughs> Herschel, Herschel Walker. Walker. <laughs> so what are your opinion of these two races? So let me jump right, right uh, into Pennsylvania here, because I know you've done some work there. You did some in the 2020 cycle. There is a very discernible uh, Latino community, especially, I think, in eastern uh, Pennsylvania, around the collar counties of Pittsburgh. These are blue-collar folks that I've been— Collar counties of Philadelphia. Is it collar counties of Philly? Okay. So it's on, it's in Eastern so Pennsylvania. Everything, almost all the Latinos in the state are in the Eastern side and they're almost 80% Puerto Rican. Okay. No, I, saw, I think I saw a New York Times story that was talking about still workers, but regardless, point remains the same. There is a discernible Latino community, which is going to probably be uh, a difference maker in these campaigns. My personal opinion is that Pennsylvania is a much more structurally blue state than people think it is. I think 2016 kind of freaked people out a little bit, but the days of when Pennsylvania could elect a Rick Santorum, I think are largely gone. Okay, I could be wrong, but when the Republicans do nominate a Dr. Oz and a Mastriano for governor, I think it presents the opportunity for Democrats to really drive home the fact that they are still the party of blue-collar folks like a John Fetterman, and he's probably the perfect candidates to do that. Advantage Fetterman that direction. I'm uh, interested to see how your work plays out in some of these collar counties with Hispanic voters. My strong suspicion is they're probably going to break 65-35 for the Democrat, maybe even 70-30 if you guys have a good year and do your job right the way I know you will. Georgia is a little bit interesting, more interesting to me. The reason why is Abrams is actually lagging the national trend. Most of these Democrats are in a competitive position. Abrams running for governor, her, her polling averages have her at a negative seven position. That is not good for a Democrat in a state which I also believe is becoming more structurally blue than red. I think the Warnock-Walker story makes more sense because Herschel Walker is probably one of the worst candidates with the exception of Roy Moore, uh, a couple years ago to run for public office. I mean, this guy- Are you telling me that you think that Warnock could win and Stacey Abrams could lose? I think that's what's going to happen. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I think that's what will happen. Uh, I think it's a state that really wants to go blue as much as it can, but this is a very discerning voter, especially when you start looking at, again, those collar counties around Atlanta, DeKalb, I always pronounce that wrong, people get mad, Gwinnett, these areas of high concentration. Atlanta, by the way, the Atlanta suburbs are the most racially diverse suburbs anywhere in the country. So they have a strong propensity to vote for Democrats uh, from a both racial perspective as well as an education level perspective. I think Georgia uh, becomes a solid blue state in the coming years, but I think we're probably looking at a split this election cycle. People don't realize, for all of you at home who listen to this program, because you think that me and Mike Madrid are Latino vote experts, and you would be right, there are a million Latinos who live in Georgia. A million. And I knew you had done work down there with the Lincoln Project. I did work in the Senate runoffs with Nuestro PAC. Uh, I'm going to give a quick comment, then we're going to get to our last segment. But on Pennsylvania, I do think that there's something interesting happening with the Latino community, mostly Puerto Rican, mostly in the eastern part of the state, Easton, Allentown, Bethlehem. Uh, Montgomery County, uh, those Latinos in the presidential election underperformed Hillary Clinton compared to Joe Biden by four points. They turned Republican four more points than, and I could, you know, put a lot of that blame of not talking to these Latinos and stuff. So you start seeing a sliding of the Latino vote in 2020, like you saw other places. So don't think of this as some democratic bastion, like we like to think about, uh, Pennsylvania, because these voters, these Puerto Ricans are either 
two different kinds of Puerto Ricans, and I know too much about this, but either they move from New York and New Jersey because it's cheaper to live in Pennsylvania, or B, they left the island of Puerto Rico to move into family when they had the hurricane. And then the whole island went to shit and people, their financial fiasco. So you have these two newly arrived folks into a democratic state who some don't understand the process and some are like, this ain't New York and New Jersey. What kind of Democrats do we have? So that's the nuance that as my work continues there that we're trying to communicate, actually, Mike would be proud of this, a working class jobs and the economy message. Uh, and in Georgia, I think me and Ebony, my fiance, debate about this all the time. She's like, nobody would ever vote for Herschel Walker. And I'm like, Georgia's still a red state. It wants to be a blue state, like Mike Madrid said, but it is a red state. But we're lucky to have two great candidates with Warnocks and Stacey Abrams. So if we, if it weren't for those two great candidates and the unlimited amount of money that they're raising, this race wouldn't even be close because it's a red state in an off-year election. But I digress. We are here in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., in this amazing sound studio here up in Northeast D.C., about 15 blocks from my house, Mike. I know you've been here working on a special project. When you're in D.C., what are things, A, that you like to do, and B, what has changed about the city? Maybe it's the food or the other things that you've noticed since you've been back here for a few days. So uh, thanks for that question. You know, Wait, you went to school here. I went to Georgetown in the mid-late 90s here. So there were parts of the of the... You wouldn't have come up here. I would not have been in this part of town ever. Like that was like part of part of the the, the notices you gave were got you as an undergraduate at Georgetown. There are certain areas you do not go to, and what's beautiful now is not only coming here and staying in different parts of the of the of the uh, quartiles here in town, but the food has gotten so much better. And let me tell you what I mean by that. There was this old stereotype that you could not find good Mexican food in Washington D.C. That is not true anymore. There is this phenomenal place in Shaw, the Shaw Logan area called El Sol. I eat at this place every time I come here. Best Mexican food. It would put breakfast tacos in San Antonio to shame. Oh, here we go. To shame, brother. And I will tell you, if you're in this area, if you don't hit El Sol, little hole in the wall, phenomenal, phenomenal food. Check it out. We're not paid by anybody to say this. This is just part of the experience. But we could be. We can be bought. We can't be bought. Just you know, email us or, or DM us here. All I can say is the days when good Mexican food were not to be had in D.C. are no longer. This is a really great town to be in. It's a great, it's very walkable in a way that it never was before. And there are neighborhoods that I'm just exploring for the first time that I never would have come here long ago. So it's, it's a great question. And I think that everybody knows that I am engaged to an amazing uh, Washingtonian who was born and raised here, Ebony, who is so proud of her city uh, and very active in her community. And over on Capitol Hill East, where we live, uh, there used to be a world-renowned hardware store called Fragers. And she worked there like every young person on Capitol Hill back in the day. It burnt down, sadly, many, many years ago. And they've just recently rebuilt it. And to your point, I came here from that new location where they've opened up a new taqueria called Paraiso. And I was meeting some friends, and that's been me and Ebony's new go-to place because they have they make their corn tortillas on site. Mm. And they have really great options on real tacos. The menu is simple. They have like eight different kinds of tacos and they have some ceviches and stuff. So like you said, 10 years ago, you would never imagine a wandering up into the Northeast part of DC where me and you are recording this right now or finding decent 
I don't think they're still great, but good, decent yeah. Mexican food. Because at El Sol, I know you're talking about it's good. It may be made by some amazing immigrants from El Salvador who are making great Mexican food, but God bless them. Yeah. It's good. It's good. And if Jill Biden were talking about this, of course, we'd be attacking her right now. But because it's Chuck and Mike, we've got free reign to talk <laughs> about tacos get, all day yeah, long. Absolutely. All day. <laughs> well, look, everybody, uh, I want to thank y'all for tuning in. I want to thank you, Mike, for coming to my city. The next time we record one live, maybe I could come to L.A. Ebony would like to do it in Palm Springs if we could. <laughs> of course. That would be great. <laughs> Uh, I'll take you to the best tacos in Palm Springs. How's that? Oh, that'd be awesome. Hey, for all of you listening at home, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to do all the things you need to do to make sure that you're following us on all of our social medias, Mike Madrid and Chuck Rocha. Make sure that you're telling your friends about this and neighbors. There's going to be so much conversation in the next hundred days about the Latino vote. Know that you can come here from this podcast, from me and Mike Madrid, 60 years of experience, and really see the truth about what's going to happen with the Latino vote. Thanks, guys. We'll talk soon. Thank you.